anyone ever watch the show with friends? The first episode of season nine is titled, The One Where No One Proposes. Rachel has just had her baby, Emma, and Ross, the baby's father, has been given a ring by his mom to propose, but doesn't know if he wants to. And Joey, another friend, goes into the room to visit Rachel. And while he's in the room, he knocks over the jacket belonging to Ross. And while picking it up, finds the ring. At that moment, Rachel opens her eyes and says something to Joey. And he turns around while still kneeling on the floor, holding the ring. And Rachel assumes that he's proposing and accepts. The rest of the episode is a play on the fact that everyone thinks that Ross and Rachel have gotten engaged while she believes she's engaged to Joey. The confusion, that's the basis of the episode, reminds me a lot of our text this morning. This morning we continue in our series, Love Never Quits, Hosea. Last week we discussed and discovered the scandalous love that God has for his people found in chapter 1. This week we, we delve into chapter 2. And we see that love in action as the events in Hosea's life begin to unfold. As I studied for this sermon this week, I was reminded of the old video game, Ms. Pac-Man. Anybody know how to play Ms. Pac-Man? When you beat a level, they had the, the scenes, the intermissions, correct? And so they, they were all things like the chase, the, you know, stuff like that. And so for some reason, this chapter came to me in that kind of format as I read it. Four distinctive phases that both overlap but also stand on their own. The pursuits, the pride, the persuasion, and the promise. Before we really begin this sermon, let me say, a study of a prophetic book is very hard to undertake in a sermon setting. So in this format, I deal with big generalities. So we're not here until Monday morning. I figure y'all want to go home and eat lunch today. And supper too. I've tried my hardest to keep the fullness of the text alive for our morning format, but I can't be detailed like I would in a big study. So with that being said, we pick up in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 2. And it says, Call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with the walls so she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket 
and wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals where she burned incense to them, put on her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers but forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Hecor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. You will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal, my Lord. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. I will shatter bows, sword, and weapons of war in the land that will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness. And you will know, Yahweh, on that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion. On no compassion, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you. We praise you for your blessings. Father, we ask right now that you would take this time and use it for your glory. Father, use me as a vessel. And the words that I speak be yours and yours alone. Father, thank you for loving us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. The pursuit. In this chapter, we see God talking about his relationship with Israel through the picture painted by Hosea's pain. The first thing we see him put out of the pursuits that she continually partakes in. He says she has an adulterous look on her face, unfaithfulness between her bosom, children conceived in disgrace, that she goes after her lovers and she chases and cannot catch them. You know, the thing about the pursuits in life is when we pursue things apart from God, our pursuits are foolish. The pursuits that Gomer was partaking in were foolish pursuits. The pursuits taken by the adulterous wife in this passage are foolish. So how do we define foolish? Well, they're the things that bring her heartache and pain with no hope in the end. There was no hope in these situations. She was running after things that could never fulfill her. She was running after things that would never put her where she wanted to be. It's those things that she thinks will give her what she wants but will ultimately fail her. How often do we find ourselves in those situations? We want to read this book and think we're Hosea. More times than not, we're Gomer. That's the, we say Gomer. I know we read that and we go Gomer. Because we've all watched Gomer Pound, but it's Gomer. Her name is Gomer. You didn't marry Gomer Pile, I promise. But we're most times her. We're the ones chasing everything we shouldn't chase after. Because there she was. We find ourselves going, well, I really should be chasing after this thing of God right here. But there's this over here that brings me temporary happiness. The hardest thing to teach a child is what? Patience, right? <laughs> that temporary happiness isn't always what's going to bring you the best blessing. It may bless you for a moment, but it may turn into something else later. And that's what's going on here. We find ourselves in our situations where we begin to run after things that God doesn't want us to run after. We find ourselves more and more walking away from God sometimes than running to God. Because at some point, we find ourselves knowing we're doing things we shouldn't do, 
And we don't want to go back and talk to God about it because, well, what child wants to talk about to their parents about the failures that they've been having, right? We don't. Most of our children don't come to us and say, you know what I did today, Mom? I know it was really, really bad, but these are the things that I did. Now can you punish me? They don't do that. That's not, that's not the first step. Most of the time, what do we do? Even as adults, we try to hide the things that we've done wrong. We don't want them to see. So once we begin choosing things apart from God and begin pursuing things that aren't of God, apart from God, it's hard for us to come back and begin talking to God. Because of the, we don't want to disappoint Him and we know He's going to be disappointed. We know that, that, that there's this relationship problem Many people want to spend their energy in this chapter tearing apart the things that God is saying He will do to the adulterous nation. But when you look, they're all the natural byproducts of unfaithfulness. God isn't, God isn't saying, well, I'm going to make sure that I do these and it's, it's, something that's, it's the natural byproducts of what's already going on. I'm going to lay her bare and expose her shamefulness. Well, that's a natural byproduct of the knowledge that people have if they know your business, right? If you're trying to hide something and people find out your business, where you know you find that shame and you begin to hide. We understand that in a small town, right? When our business gets out there, we don't want people to know. We understand that. That's, that's what's going on. He says, I'm gonna lay her bare, I'm gonna show her shamefulness to everyone. It's much like the first chapter of Romans. There, Paul is talking in the first chapter of Romans about the wrath of God being put on humanity. And people want to preach that and talk about how God's fixing to send something. But that's not what the first chapter of Romans says. The first chapter of Romans says when you read it that the wrath of God is God saying if you want your filth, I'm going to let you live in your filth. That's what it says. The wrath of God is, well fine. Live in it. And when you live in it, these things are going to happen. When you live in it, these things are going to filter down and people begin to do things that are unnatural. In the first part of this chapter, we see what God says He's going to do. And they are the filth that she has chosen. Public shame for her actions. Unlovable children because they're not mine. All this filth she is choosing to live in. Then God does something miraculous. She's going to do all these things. So I'm going to block in her paths. <laughs> I'm going to wall her in. Then maybe she'll come back to me like she did at first. God put up obstacles not to make her change, but to give her the chance to go in a different direction. Does God ever do that to you? <laughs> you find yourself on the edge knowing that this next step is one that I shouldn't take. There's this temptation out there. And if we're going to bring me temporary happiness, and I don't have to wait as long as I want to wait for it. And I should not take this step. But, but, but it's so tempting, and it's right there. You know, sometimes... There's an obstacle that God places in our way because sometimes obstacles aren't the things are the things God uses to direct us back to Him. We often look at an obstacle and we get upset and we say, obstacles are meant to be overcome. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes obstacles are used by God for us to say, I shouldn't go this way. Maybe I should take a step back and say, is this the direction I need to go in? Maybe I need to stop and pray over this. Why do we whine when we face an obstacle? That obstacle may be God's way of saying, hey, I'm not over there, I'm over here. Maybe God's way of protecting you. Obstacles aren't always meant to be overcome. They're meant for us to stop and seek God. 
morning, you get up in the morning, <clears throat> and you're already running late, and so you throw on all your clothes, and you get dressed as fast as you can, and you run out the door, and there's a flat tire on the car. So you quickly change it, and you get the spare put on and everything else, and you go to start it up, and the car won't start. And then you get the battery jumped off, and the car started, and you get on the road, and you're muttering the whole time, and as you're muttering, you pass by the wreck on the side of the road, the intersection that you just were going to go through if you would have been on time. Maybe God put obstacles there for a reason. Sometimes obstacles aren't for us to say, I just need to get over that. Sometimes they're there for another reason. When we come to an obstacle, we have a choice. We can stop, and we can seek God about what to do, or we can just break through like Gomer and go where we want to go. That's the choice we have. The problem with foolish pursuits is they breed confusion. Notice verse 8. She has not acknowledged that these blessings are for me. She's confused. She's confused about where things come from. When we begin to pursue other things besides God, we find ourselves forgetting where our blessings come from. I make all my money. It's mine. Why should I tithe 10% to God? I build my house with my own two hands. I get up every morning and I go to work. I eat right. I exercise. I do all the things I should. Whatever I have, I earn. When we pursue things in the place of God, those things begin to take control. Which brings us to our second act, pride. When we pursue anything instead of God, it's almost always because of pride. Almost always. If we make a choice to pursue something that isn't God, it's because of pride. When you turn back over to verse 5, if you have a Bible with you, it says, I will go out after my lovers, the men who gave me my water and my wool and flax, my oil and drink, my, 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 my. Depending on the translation, there are between six and nine times that the words me and my are used in that one verse. All of a sudden, she's focused on herself. She's become selfish and prideful that everything is hers. Just like we were just saying, my house, my money, my kids, my cars, my possessions, my time, my life. Pride is the root of all sin. It's where it starts. It's the root of all sin. When you look at the example of adultery here, no matter the excuse someone gives, they all go down to selfish pride. Always. It's always selfish pride. Well, we just don't love each other anymore. Well, all these things, it always ends up being selfish pride. What Gomer was saying to Hosea is, you're not enough for me. Notice that me again. It's that me. And that's really what Israel was saying to God. God, you're not enough for us. You're not enough. What we say to God when we share the things instead of Him is that you're not enough for me. There's that pride again. It's always, God, you're not enough. Now you may be saying, that's not me. I come to church. I give. I follow the rules mostly. You're talking about adultery and that's not me. But the backdrop of this book is the worship of Baal. Baal. It's the worship of Baal. It's a fertility religion. And Israel had become synchristic in their beliefs. What that means is they began to take this and that and this, and they merged it with what they did with Yahweh. It wasn't that they weren't going to the temple. It wasn't that they weren't worshiping God. The problem was that they had added other things to that worship. They had begun to do other things in their worship. They were doing the technical law, but they were missing the point about being faithful spiritually. That's, that's the issue here. 
That's where it becomes prideful. We can do all the things we're supposed to do. We can check all the box on the offering envelope. We can do all those things and still be missing the point and being unfaithful because something else has been put in, place, put in the place of God. We can be in church every Sunday, tithe 10%, give the special offerings, not cuss, chew, or go with girls who do, but still be unfaithful spiritually because pride is up there. And that's when we see the wrath of God in verses 9 through 13 here. God allowing Israel to go through the valley that has been caused by their lack of thankfulness. Sometimes a hard time is God saying, forget that and remember me. If your pursuit is money, God may bring you to financial ruin so you'll remember him. When the rich young ruler comes to see Jesus and he goes away sad because he has much money and the disciples say what in the world because Jesus says I tell you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of heaven and the disciples are like well who's going to go to heaven then not that it's impossible but you have to get to a point where, where there's nowhere else to look God provides everything we have whether we work for it or not. Even if we worked for our money, God gave us the ability to work for our money because there are lots of people who can't work. God has provided us. God provides everything. And sometimes just when we think we can't handle anymore and we realize where God, who we, where we are and God isn't there, sometimes we're still in the middle of our foolish pursuits and then God does an unimaginable thing. He tries to win our heart back. I, the flow of this passage is amazing to me because it's he's rebuking her. He's so upset. I'm going to block her in. I'm going to expose her nakedness. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to turn her gardens into a thicket and wild animals are going to eat them. I'm going to punish her. So all these things, this is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her. I'm just, goes from this to I'm going to persuade her. On this point, I can't go on without throwing in the promise because the promise is part of this persuasion. The important thing here is not that we find huge verses to prove persuasion. The important thing is that God seeks to persuade His creation into a relationship with Him. He doesn't force a relationship with Him. He doesn't say, Hosea, go and force her to come home. Go find her. Go persuade her. God says, I'm going to persuade Israel. I'm going to take her out and I'm going to, I'm going to whisper sweet nothings. I'm going to sing romantic songs. I'm going to bring flowers and candy. I'm going to do all those things to entice her and come back to where she used to be. That's, that's who our God is. He seeks to persuade us into a relationship. He is a force. He could have said, Israel, whether you like it or not, you're going to follow me how, I, how you're going to do it. That's what he does. People have asked, why didn't Jesus just come out and just open the, the sky and step down and say, we're doing this? Why did you come as a baby? Because he doesn't come to force us into this subjugation. He doesn't come to force us to be his followers. He comes to persuade us to be his followers. He comes to love us. He comes to 
allure us in verse 14. He speaks tenderly to us. The holy God, the creator of the universe, the one whom there is no darkness or sin, doesn't simply put up with us. He desires us. He seeks after us. He woos us as a man who woos the woman of his dreams. Rather than point out all our flaws, he points out that thing about us that makes us his. He begins to persuade us with word, with actions, and with love. That's the God of the Bible. Persuading us, wooing us, trying to win our heart and to bring us back. Part of the persuasion and the result following the promises that he gives. There are three promises he gives here. I'm going to make the valley of Acor a door of hope. Literally, the valley of Acor is the gloomy valley. I'm going to make your gloomy valley into a door of hope. Here, God promises, I'm going to make your tragedy a door of hope. What does that mean to you today? What's your valley of gloom? Where are you at? Where do you find yourself downhearted? God promises that for those who love him, your tragedy will become hope. No longer will it be that which binds you. No more will you be brokenhearted. From that pain will rise a hope that is promised for you. There's a shift in relationship here. He says in verse 16 that no longer in that day you will call me my husband. No longer my Lord. But all there is the word Lord. You will no longer call me my master. You will call me my husband. The relationship will be restored. It goes from one of warning over to tender love. From temporal, temporal and breakable to eternal and strong. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. We will be loved and claimed as his. The three promises of God here are all the same. God promises to take what you have ruined and make it priceless.
and we don't know we don't know the next step. We don't know what it's going to take. But God hasn't given up on your situation. God hasn't stopped working and intervening. And even though your valley may be the valley of Acor right now, it may be the valley of gloominess, He promises that He is going to restore to you what it is that you're looking for. He promises that he's going to take that valley and make something beautiful out of it. I know I've experienced it three times at this point. Two of them are sitting here, one of them's back there. I know the valley of Acor. I've seen it, I've watched it, I've walked through it many times, but God always restores that spot. He takes us and he puts us where we need to be. And he gives us that more than we can ever imagine. Because that's the God that we serve. And he doesn't stop. His love doesn't finish. He doesn't say, well, you know, like it's just too far gone. There's nothing too far gone for God. There's nothing that he can't fix. Absolutely nothing. My notes stop there. I usually have something to wind me down. My notes stop there and I don't know why. <laughs> this morning, maybe you're walking through your valley of gloom. Maybe there's a hurt that you're holding on to that nobody knows about. And you're crying out and you're wondering why. God wants you to know just to hold on a little while longer. Because he's working. He's working in a way better than you could ever imagine. And he's going to take that valley of gloom and make it into a gateway of hope. Maybe this morning... been pursuing something that isn't God. Maybe something has been getting in the way. Maybe there's just something that for some reason it is just so easy. I had a conversation this morning about once you get out of church it's so easy not to get not to be in because that's a that's a habit that once once you know you can sit around and drink coffee and eat breakfast at 11 o'clock it's hard to want to get back and want to put your clothes on and come back but you know what we're missing something Miss a fellowship that, that you just don't get online. It's a great tool. It's something that, that I'm glad is there that people get to see. And they can be a part when they can't be here. But man, it does not do what this does. And maybe, maybe today you were walking through that valley and you're holding on to something. Now's the time to say, okay, God, I'm going to sow the seeds in the valley of gloom, knowing that you're going to turn it into a gateway of hope. I'm going to sow my hope into this valley. I'm going to sow it there because I know that you are a God who gives more than I could ever imagine. 
maybe this morning you've been pursuing these things and you're just ready to say, okay, God, I'm tired of, of pursuing things that are foolish. I want to come back and I want to pursue you because I know when I pursue you, I'm on the right path. Maybe this morning you just need to pray. The altar is open. I'll pray with you. Maybe you're short into missions or ministry. Maybe you want to join this church in membership. Maybe this morning you've never known Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've never taken a step to know the one who can take you from ashes to beauty. Who can, who can take you out of the depths and put you into the place that you want to be. Who can break every chain. If you don't know him, know him today. But wherever you're at this morning, whatever you need, give it to him. That's perfect. <coughs> Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you. We praise you for your blessings.